Well, good morning, Grace Bible Fellowship. It is a privilege to be with you again this morning. Our time here uh, earlier on in the year will always be a time that we will look back on with very fond memories and just the love that you showed us and how you received us. And so this morning I bring you greetings from Sovereign Grace Bible Church in Austin, Manitoba. We've been there, which seems hard to believe, five months. We've, we've been there, and I don't know how, how to give an update, but uh, I think things are going well. We are settling in, and uh, the church has just really, really received us very well. They are very much like you guys in that, in that sense, so we are very grateful for that. Um, we, we have Sunday morning services and Wednesday evening Bible studies, and uh, that's kind of how we're trying to get things off the ground and, and get the church established there. So, um, yeah, we'll love to talk to some of you guys after the service yet, but uh, it's good, good to be here. It's always a privilege to preach God's Word, but it is a special honor for me to be given this pulpit to serve you in God's Word, to stand in the pulpit of Men of steadfast character is a special and high honor, and it is indeed a privilege for me to be here. I have appreciated Pastor Mike from before we ever even came here, his friendship, and just the continued resource that he continues to be for me even now, and uh, it is a privilege. But to look at God's Word this morning, we want to consider a curse and a blessing from our text in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10 to 14. So if you would turn in your Bibles, verse 10 to 14. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he recognizes that this damnable doctrine of works righteousness for salvation must be addressed from every side, that it must be confronted from every angle, and that every argument for works righteousness must be deconstructed. And therefore, Paul, in our text, he continues, as he's been doing in this book, in this epistle, to write regarding salvation and justification by faith apart from works because the Holy Spirit knows that this will be a problem throughout church history. The Holy Spirit knows that even a saved man who has been regenerated by and through the gospel can become bewitched. He can become bewitched by bad theology and false doctrines and then by that and because of that compromise the gospel. We see that this had happened with and to the Galatians as well. Just a few verses back from our text, in verse 1 of the same chapter, Paul says to the Galatians, he says, Who has bewitched you 
And even the Apostle Peter, we see he fell into this vice in chapter 2 when, and Paul confronted him to his face in the presence of them all. We see that even a saved man can become bewitched by false doctrines. And, and becoming bewitched by false doctrines, he starts to gravitate and will even very quickly gravitate toward a work's righteousness for salvation. And in the process, lose the gospel entirely. And that is the danger. The danger is not that those who have been regenerated, that those who have been saved will lose their salvation, but there is a danger that they can lose the gospel. And what they are then proclaiming will no longer be the gospel for those who are even coming after them, the next generation. And that is what Paul gives even as kind of a purpose statement for this epistle when he says in chapter 2 in the last part of verse 5, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. These Galatians, they have been saved through Paul's ministry. Great things have happened uh, for them and among them. And Paul does not doubt that these are indeed believers, but they have been bewitched by the Judaizers. These Judaizers who have been a thorn in Paul's side everywhere he went, trying to destroy and disrupt the work of the gospel. They have now also come to Galatia where Paul has been ministering and they're disrupting and troubling the people who have been converted through Paul's preaching of Christ. In chapter 1, Paul has said to the Galatians that they are deserting the gospel for that which is accursed. That they have allowed themselves to be troubled by those who do not preach the gospel but distort it. Men who he then says in chapter 2 are false brothers, evil and wicked men who hate not only the gospel but the Christ of this gospel. Their purpose and their goal is not the welfare of the Galatians or anyone else for that matter. Their goal is the destruction of the gospel and the ones who have embraced the gospel so that the gospel can be destroyed. They have come to... Galatia and everywhere Paul seemed to go, these Judaizers would come and, and they, would, they would present or teach a Christ plus something. And they would even come, come here now and they would say, oh, has Paul been here? Well, that's great, but, but you also, you need to be circumcised. Yes, you need to believe in Christ, but you need to be circumcised. Or you, you need to abide by the laws of, of the Jews, the, the Jewish customs, all the dietary laws. Or they would even say that while Paul is not really an authority to be saying anything, we, on the other hand, we have come from Jerusalem where where the apostles are. We have authority in what we are saying. And they would try to refute and discredit and attack the character of the messenger, which in this case was the apostle Paul. And it is so typical when the gospel is being attacked. Because the gospel cannot be refuted. The gospel is the everlasting truth of God. And so when men try to destroy or attack the gospel, they have to attack the credibility and the character of the messenger. And these men, Paul says, must not be given any opportunity to have any kind of influence over the people so that the gospel will be protected and preserved. So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you, he says, that it might be preserved, that it might not be lost in the process. Some time ago I was watching a video, and I'm not even sure how I got this video, but I was watching a video of an interviewer going, interviewer going around um, what seemed like a, to be a shopping center of some, some kind. 
I don't know where this was, if this was in Canada or the U.S., most likely in the U.S., but this interviewer was asking people what their perspective was on Christianity and then asking them if they were Christian. And all of their answers, all of their perspectives on Christianity and what Christianity was and and what made someone a Christian was related to something they were doing, something they had done or were a part of. And in September 2017, 500 years after the Reformation, Stoyan Zaimov, a writer for the Christian Post, he wrote an article titled, Half of Protestants Agree with Roman Catholics that Good Deeds and Faith Are Needed for Salvation. And in that article, he was quoting the results from a Pew Research Center survey. And quoting that article Quote, Pew, which released this survey to mark the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, explored different questions, though one of the main focuses was on the requirements for salvation. They surveyed questions that focused on what was the requirements for salvation, and 52% of U.S. Protestants said that both good deeds and faith are needed to get into heaven. 46% said that faith alone is needed. Only 46% of Protestants embraced sola fide, faith alone, that which was one of the core tenets of the Reformation. And I think we might be surprised even, we might be surprised how many people that we know are in this 52% category in some way, shape, or form. And given such statistics, we can then see why Paul would not let up And why he was so hard and emphatic against the astoundable doctrine of works playing a role in salvation. Because we can see that this is not a problem that was only specific to the Galatians, but has been problematic throughout the generations of church history, and it is problematic even in our generation. We see that Christians, from how Paul addresses this in verse 1 to 5, can be bewitched when the truth of the gospel is neglected when it is not held to tenaciously and fought for valiantly. And though these Galatians have been saved, Paul is convinced of that. But he draws their mind back to the truth of that in verse 1 to 5 and the reality that that they, they have received the Holy Spirit, thus reminding them that the Holy Spirit is in them, reminding them that they were once willing to suffer for the faith that they had embraced. Reminding them that they had witnessed the miracles that that were performed by the apostles and that they had witnessed the miracle of their own salvation. And so Paul, appealing to their own experience in verse 1 to 5, he draws their mind back to the reality of who they are and what they have in Christ, what they have witnessed as believers, and then he appeals to the word of God in verse 6 to 9. He appeals to the example of Abraham way back in Genesis that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness, that this is how God had preached the gospel to Abraham way back then already. The Judaizers would come and they'd say, well, you must be circumcised, and he would point them to the scriptures, to Abraham, and how Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness and that this was long before Abraham was ever circumcised. Then they'd say, well, you need to adhere to the law and the other aspects of the law, and now Paul says, okay, well, let's look at the law. Let's use the law then as our argument. Let's use the law as our argument for justification. And he appeals to the law, and through that appeal, we see what he says in verse 10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Paul says, 
Okay, you want to use the law? Then let's use the law. When we use the law, those who rely on the law or on the works of the law are under a curse. And we see, first of all, the curse of works for salvation for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. This is a frightening statement, one that is very difficult for people to accept. It is a frightening statement, and because of its frightening nature, many times we don't want to talk about it because we don't want to go tell somebody that you, you who are doing good works, that which is good, right? They're doing that which is good. To tell them that actually they are under a curse because of what they're doing. It is a frightening statement. It is a hard statement. But it is not a hard statement because the scriptures are hard to understand. It is hard for man to accept, to deal with, because it requires letting go of self entirely. It requires letting go of everything that I am, that I may do, that I may want, even, or think, and yielding all to Christ. And therefore, it is a frightening uh, statement in its nature, and the flesh resists this. But that doesn't make it any less of a reality. And therefore, we must talk about it because the Scriptures talk about it. The Scriptures spend great time talking about this because those who rely on, the, on their works, they're under a curse. They will be shocked one day. They will stand before the Lord and they will be cast into hell. These people who Paul is referring to, these are not the atheists or the murderers or even those in Romans 1 that have suppressed the truth of God and unrighteousness and have been given over to do every abominable thing that a debased mind might be able to come up with. These are not those people. These are those who rely on the works of the law. These are those who think they're living a good life, that they're doing good. They're relying on, on the good life that they have tried to live or are trying to live. These people who Paul identifies in Romans 1, which is even a large part of our society, given over to a debased mind, as he says, they do not rely on the works of the law. They reject the works of the law. They go and they do contrary to the works or to the law as much as they possibly can. These people that, that Paul identifies in our text as being under a curse are thinking that their adherence to the law, they're trying to do what the law says, they're doing good things, somehow makes them right or acceptable before God. They even recognize to an extent God's righteousness and his holiness and that he requires righteousness and holiness and they believe that by their doing, by who they are, by what they are, by what they are doing or by what they have done, they are more righteous and holy and thus will be accepted by God. That because of that, God will say, well done, you have given it a good, solid, genuine effort. They're like the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18, if you would just go there, Luke chapter 18, who goes into the temple to pray along with the tax collector. In Luke chapter 18 and verse 9. He also, Luke 18 verse 9, this is Jesus. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. What is he doing? He is reminding God of the bad things that he hasn't done. 
I haven't done these bad things. I'm not like this person. And that is why they treated other people with contempt. They compared themselves among themselves, what the scripture says is not wise. And we'll always find somebody who is worse than we are. And so they treated with contempt those who they found to be worse than they were because it made themselves feel and look better. They compared themselves with those who were worse and then they treated them with contempt. But the standard is not other people. The standard is much higher than that. It is absolute perfection, even as we will see this morning. But this Pharisee, he comes to pray and he reminds the Lord of these things that he has not done, those things that would be bad, those things that that would be wrong. He trusted in himself and in his own doing. He was relying on his works, the works of the law. He is telling the Lord of all the bad things that I haven't done. Then in verse 12, he begins to remind the Lord of the good things that he has done, those things that the law would would want them to do, those that that everybody looking at that would say, yeah, this is a good thing. Verse 12, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, verse 13, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This tax collector recognized that he had come short of the law's requirements, that he was a violator of the law. And all he could do was throw himself at the mercy of God. That is all that anyone can do, and we'll see this even in Paul's appeal to the law. But Jesus says, verse 14 now, he says, I tell you, this man, this tax collector, went down to his house justified. That is the whole issue. Justification. How can sinful man be in the right before a holy God? That is the good news of the gospel. The gospel declares how man must be right before God. This man was justified not because he had done or because he hadn't done, but because he threw himself at the mercy of God. Verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And so Jesus told this parable to those who trusted in themselves for justification that they were righteous. Yet only one of these men was justified in in the right before a holy God. Turn now to Matthew chapter 7. I want to read verse 21 or beginning in verse 21. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 21. Our Lord says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And some will even pounce on that and say, See, the one who does, it's doing. But he says, The one who does the will of my Father in heaven. And what is the context? It is of being in the right before God so as to enter into his presence. It is justification. And what is the will of the Father that we must do in order to be able to enter into his presence? Keep your finger here in Matthew 7 and and turn to John chapter 6. The Gospel of John chapter 6. And again, we have this in the context of being justified, being able to enter into the presence of a holy God, to to be right with God. John chapter 6 and verse 28. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, 
that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now, if we look at verse 40, John chapter 6, in Matthew, Jesus said, Not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but they who do the will of the Father. We saw in verse 29 here in John's gospel that, that doing his work is believing, and now we see what doing or working his will is in order to see the kingdom. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the law or looks on the Son and keeps the law. No, that's, that's not what he says. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What is the Father's will? What is working the Father's will? It is to believe in Jesus Christ. The Father's will for justification so as to enter into his presence is to believe on the one whom he has sent, to believe on Jesus Christ. Now if we go back to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7 and verse 22, our Lord goes on, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, but I did believe in you. Again, we don't see that. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? What are they presenting to the Lord? They're not saying to the Lord, because of the Lord Jesus Christ and his marvelous saving work, I am allowed into the presence of God. They're presenting to the Lord that which they have done as the reason for why they should not be cast out. Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works? They think that what they have done was a determining factor by, by what they say. And by what they say they have done, it is even seemingly quite substantial. We might even have been wowed and awed by what they have done. But verse 23, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. You are lawbreakers, therefore depart from me. Depart from me, lawbreaker, for as a lawbreaker you are cursed. For all lawbreakers are cursed, as we will see, and all are lawbreakers. Look at the next part of verse 10, back in Galatians chapter 3. We see the extent of the curse. For it is written... It is written, this will not be changed, this cannot be changed. The word of God is forever settled in heaven, it stands forever. And we will see yet even where it is written, but he says, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things in the book of the law and do them. This is quoted from Deuteronomy 27 verse 26, and, and we'll get to that yet. But so as to get a, a full context and a full extent of, of what Paul is referring to, that, that the word will really impress upon our hearts the, the weight of this, not only for the sake of our own salvation, but, but even then for, for the command and then the requirement and the demand that then it places upon us to preserve and to defend the gospel, the need for defending the gospel against any kind of works, righteousness, and so to see this, before we go to Deuteronomy 27, that which Paul is quoting, go first back to Deuteronomy chapter 11 and verse 1. Deuteronomy 
Deuteronomy chapter 11 and verse 1. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments as much as you possibly can. No. You shall love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. Look at verse 26 and 28, still in Deuteronomy 11. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commands, commandments of the Lord your God. How? Always. Which I command you today. And the curse, if you do not then always as well, do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. If you turn aside from this commandment, there is a curse. If you follow the commandment, there is a blessing. But if you turn aside, if you do not always keep this commandment, there is a curse. Now, if you jump to chapter 12, verse 1, Deuteronomy 12, 1. These are the statutes and the rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess. As often and as best as you can, follow these rules. Again, that is not what Scripture says, but all the days that you live on the earth. How long? How often? All the days that you live on this earth. And then for the next 12 or 14 chapters, he gives all these laws and these rules that they are to keep always as long as they're living in the land, not turning aside from them in the slightest. Laws against idolatry, laws for clean and unclean food, for places of worship, laws for tithing and for the Sabbath year, laws for the Passover, for feasts, laws against forbidden forms of worship, laws for legal decisions, laws concerning Israel's kings and the provision and the people's responsibility to the kings long before there were ever even kings in Israel. Laws for provisions for the priests and the Levites. Laws uh, for cities of refuge. Laws which would allow those who unintentionally kill another person to flee into these cities and be protected without being prosecuted and charged as a murderer. Laws regarding property boundaries concerning warfare. Laws on how they were to deal with unsolved murders. Laws regarding marrying female captives. Laws regarding inheritance and rebellious sons. Laws concerning sexual morality, concerning those who were excluded from the assembly. And uncleanness among the people. Laws regarding divorce and all manner of various other laws. And all these laws the Lord gave them. Now if we jump past that to chapter 26, Deuteronomy chapter 26, and we pick up in verse 16... After all those laws, laws regarding all those various things, verse 16 of Deuteronomy 26, this day the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and rules. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. Now, not only is there the command to do them always, but now there is the command of how they then must be performed in order to be legitimate. With all your heart and with all your soul making it even more impossible. You have declared today that the Lord is your God, verse 17, and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes and his commandments and his rules and will obey his voice. And the Lord has declared to you that you are a people for his treasured possession as he has promised you, 
and that you are to keep all his commandments, and that he will set you in praise and in fame and in honor high above all the nations that he has made, and that you shall be a people holy to the Lord your God as he has promised. The people have promised to follow always all the commands. But we see that this, we'll see as we go along that this promise, just making this promise is not yet sufficient. Now in verse 1, chapter 27. Now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people saying, keep the whole commandment that I command you today. The whole commandment. Now in verse 9, then Moses and the Levitical priests said to all Israel, keep silence and hear, O Israel, this day you have become the people of the Lord your God. You shall therefore obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. That day Moses charged the people, saying, when you have crossed over the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerzim to bless the people. And he gave them various laws, various aspects of the laws that they had already been given. And after every declaration of the law, all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Verse 15. Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman and sets it up in secret. 16. Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or mother. 17. Cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark. 18. Cursed be anyone who misleads a blind man on the road. 19. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. 20. Cursed be anyone who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's nakedness. 21. Cursed be anyone who lies with any kind of an animal. 22. Cursed be anyone who lies with his sister, whether the daughter of his father or the daughter of his mother. 23. Cursed be anyone who lies with his mother-in-law. 24. Cursed be anyone who strikes down his neighbor in secret. 25. Cursed be anyone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood. And if that wasn't curse enough, and the danger of cursing wasn't real enough, now he says in verse 26, that which Paul quotes in our text in Galatians. Verse 26, cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law, of, of this law, not just by saying amen, but by doing them. The only way that this law is actually confirmed is if it is being done. And if it is being done completely, as we have seen, and all the people shall say amen. And now if we look at the next chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 28, Verse 1 to 6. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do as many of these commandments as you possibly can, again, that is not what the Scriptures say. If you are going to be careful to do all His commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. If you do all that, if you do not turn aside... This is the blessing, full and complete blessing, blessing in and for all things 
For as Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 21, if righteousness had come, had been able to come by the law, this would have been the law by which it would have come. This law, if it was kept, promises incredible and full blessing, full and total blessing, but it requires that you keep all of it as we have seen. Now, if we look at verse 15, Deuteronomy 28, verse 15 to 20, we see that as extensive and full the blessing to to the one who does not abide, so extensive is also the curse. He is cursed. Everything that would have been blessed is now cursed if he does not abide. Verse 15, Deuteronomy 28. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of your evil deeds because you have forsaken me. What is the implication? That if we do not keep the whole law, that if the whole law is not kept, there is no blessing. There is only cursing. And so we see the extent of this curse that if we violate only one point, The blessing has been forfeited. There is no blessing. But only a curse remains, as James says in James chapter 2, verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. The New Testament writers were only saying that which the Old Testament made abundantly clear. Even Israel, to whom the law had been given, they had had the law for 1,500 years. And they had not kept the law. They were unable to keep the law. And we see that because of that, they indeed fell under this curse. Because no one has the ability to do all that the law is commanded. It is impossible, save the Lord Jesus Christ. Some have said that the law is like like a chain that that ties a ship to its mooring. But even if you cut only one link, the, the ship is no longer tied. Some have referred to it as a window that if you hit it with a hammer, only in in the top small corner, you have now broken the entire window. It is a unified whole because all of these laws, these laws that we've looked at even sometimes referred to as civil or ceremonial laws, they were in their context. Applications of the Decalogue, the, the Ten Commandments. That which reveals or expresses God's perfect will and character. And when that is violated... The one who violates it is a lawbreaker, a worker of lawlessness, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. So we can see why Paul says in our text, those who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. The law requires perfect adherence, and therefore those who rely on it are under a curse. That is what the law promises to those whose adherence is not perfect. That is what the law is. That is what it does. It curses those who try to keep it for righteousness. For to be righteous by the law, we must do all things the law declares or requires. 
And if there is a complete keeping of the law, indeed, there will be incredible blessing, but no one abides by all things in the law. And because we did not abide by all things, we are cursed. As the law says, cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them, not just by a profession. Those who rely on the law, those who rely on their doing, are relying on that which actually declares them cursed. They are presenting to God a curse and expecting him to say, okay, I will accept that. That which God has said is cursed, they are presenting now as the means by which they hope to be accepted before a holy God. They're presenting a curse to the Lord as the means by which they expect to enter into his presence. They are lawbreakers. That is why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, you lawbreakers. You are lawbreakers. You are cursed. Depart from me, you cursed one. It is proven that you are lawbreakers. You have not kept the whole law. And this extent of the curse, Paul also declares in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, when he says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, he tells us that the wages of this curse is death. And so we see the extent of this curse, that all are under this curse. For the law required perfection of everyone, and no one has met that. No mere human being has ever met that or will ever meet that. Those who are under the law are cursed, which we are all under the law. So all are then cursed. For as Paul also says in Galatians 3.22, the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. And so we can see that those who rely on the law as a means of their righteousness, they're double cursed. They're cursed because they did not keep the law and they're cursed again because they're using that which is already cursed to present as a means of justification which just curses them again. Then in verse 11 and 12, we see then the obvious conclusion that we must draw, therefore, from the law. Galatians 3, 11 to 12, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. We've seen this. This is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. No one is justified by the law. This is clear. They're only cursed. No one kept the whole law. This is obvious from the law. These are then obvious conclusions that Paul draws from that. But if there's only cursing, then what? Again, he appeals to the scriptures. The law declares that we are cursed. That no one is justified by the law, but also what is obvious from the law, the scriptures also declare, even in the Old Testament, that the righteous shall live by faith. That they are justified only by faith, quoting Habakkuk 2.4. Now I want us to just see this again from the pages of scripture from the Old Testament. So if you turn to Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. Habakkuk is wrestling with the fact that God will use a a wicked nation, a a nation more wicked even than Israel, to, to punish Israel. And Habakkuk is wrestling with this, saying, Lord, how can you use someone as evil and wicked as Babylon to judge Israel, to, to be a punishment to Israel? 
Yes, Israel has sinned, Israel has disobeyed, but this nation is even more wicked than we are. And yes, Babylon, God tells Habakkuk that Babylon will eventually be judged, but he explains to Habakkuk that God will do things and work in ways that he cannot understand. And in the midst of all that, the just, the righteous, are to live by faith. Habakkuk 2.4, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not right within him. You're right, Habakkuk. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Because righteousness comes by faith, the righteous shall live by faith. They shall not begin by faith and continue in works, but the one who is righteous shall live by his faith. And so we have seen the extent of the law, the extent of the curse, that if you break one part of it, you are under the curse, and we know and we see that there is none who has kept the whole law. And so all are under the curse, and we see through that even the depth of this curse. And those who are under the curse, they are, they are followers of Satan, really. They, they follow the God of this world. That is the obvious conclusion that we can then draw from the law. That is what the law teaches. That is what Scripture teaches. And Paul says the law is not faith. The law is doing. That is obvious. And it requires perfect doing all the time. And it is obvious that no one can then be justified by the law because the law only declares us guilty. Not only is that obvious from the law, but the scripture declares that the just shall live by faith. But second to that, he says in verse 12, but the law is not faith. The second obvious conclusion is that the law is not faith, it is doing, and and we've seen that. It is not faith, it is doing. Doing this, doing all of it. The one who does them shall live by them. Quoting Leviticus 18 verse 5, when the Lord says, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. If you are counting on the law, you must live by it, and you must live by it completely. So regardless of where we look, where we turn to in the Old Testament, the New Testament, that which Paul quotes, or Deuteronomy, or Leviticus, wherever we go, all will tell us the same thing, that whoever relies on the works of the law is under a curse. And I want us just to see this in Ephesians chapter 2, then how we live, how those who are under a curse live. Ephesians chapter 2, those, those who are under a curse, those who are under the double curse, the curse of the law and even the curse of, 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 of Adam being born in sin. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, Following the, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That is really the work of the one who, who tries to keep the law for righteousness, for justification. It's actually following the prince of the power of the air. That is who those under the curse are. That is what they do. They are not following God. They're following the prince of the power of the air, the, the devil among whom we all once, Paul goes on, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Those relying on the law are not only under the curse of the law, but under the curse of Adam, being born with a sin nature, dead in sins and trespasses. This is how those who are are under a curse live. That is what they are. 
And then in verse 4, we have the most beautiful words in all of Scripture, but God. Which is also then, this but God is also then the content, the last bit of our text in Galatians chapter 3. If we go back to Galatians 3, 13 to 14, we see the blessing. We have seen the extent of the curse, that which the law does. It can only curse, and it does curse, and it has cursed everyone. And as frightening as that part of our text is, as frightening as the words of our Lord are when he says, Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The reality of being cursed, as frightening as that is, even more glorious is this blessing that we see in the next two verses. The but God. The blessing of Christ cursed for us. Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Now before we look at this glorious truth, let us just note the next four words. For it is written. Let us just remember that as we consider this glorious truth of Christ having redeemed us. Let us remember that it is written. It is written in God's word. It is, it is written forever. It will stand. It will not be changed. It will be as it has been written. It cannot be changed. It cannot be altered. It is eternal. It is written. God's word will forever stand. And again, it has been written that Christ has redeemed us. He has redeemed us from the curse. That means he has bought us back. He has bought us out of that curse that we've just seen. The language that is being used of of Christ having redeemed us is a word that was used of slaves in the marketplace. When they were being bought by someone with the intention of setting them free so as to release them from bondage. That is what Christ has done. He has redeemed us from the curse of the law. He hasn't bought us to, to remain under the law, but to set us free from the law. This curse that we are all under. Christ has bought us back from this curse. We were slaves of the law. We were cursed by the law. We were slaves of the devil, cursed to do his will. But how has he bought us back? By becoming a curse for us. God's curse coming upon him. He was not cursed because he was on a cross. He was on a cross because he was cursed. Paul says in our text, curse is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53, 6 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, he says. What does the law say? The law says, if you turn, there will be cursing. You will be cursed. And Isaiah says, we have all gone astray. We have all turned. We are all under this curse. Everyone, Isaiah says, has turned to his own way. But then he says, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The curse that was ours for having turned aside from the law, that the Lord laid on him, and he became a curse for us. And on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Son of God, rested the curse of all those whom the Lord had written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. And even in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Lord in his humanity, he cried out, if it is possible, 
Let this cup pass from me. This, this cup, the iniquity that the Lord laid on him, the curse that was on him for us not keeping the law, this the Lord laid on him. But it was not possible for this cup to pass from him. If this cup had passed from him, then we would remain cursed. But now this curse was placed upon him. He was cursed by the Father. Our curse coming upon him. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake. For our sake. For those who would look upon whom he sent and believe. For our sake he, God the Father, for our sake he made him, Christ Jesus, to be sin. To be the curse, the one who knew no sin, the the one who wasn't cursed, the one who wasn't under the curse. The angel had said to Mary in, in Luke's gospel, He who will be born of you, he will be holy. He will be the Son of God. He he was not cursed, he was not under the curse. He knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus Christ, those who believe that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Not that we might become righteous by keeping the law, but that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. That we might receive his righteousness because he kept the law for us. He lived the life that we couldn't. He is the one to whom is all that blessing. And because he was cursed, we now can receive his righteousness, the Messiah, the Savior. The one who was the spotless, sinless Lamb of God who kept the whole law without turning from it. He is the one who is being cursed, who was cursed by God. This was unthinkable for the Jew. This couldn't be in their minds. This just could not be the Messiah, couldn't be a cursed person. This just would not work. But he wasn't cursed as we were. He became cursed. He was the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. And he became a curse for us. And the reason they couldn't accept this is because they could not see what the law declared. That they were cursed. Because they did not see their own cursed state. They didn't see that the Messiah needed to be cursed for them. They didn't see that it wasn't possible for this cup to pass from him. And so it is still today. Those who do not see that they are under the curse of the law, they don't recognize, they don't see that the Savior had to become a curse. The Lord Jesus Christ, the the Son of God, was cursed by God. And if there was ever any doubt, Paul says in our text in Galatians, just look. He redeemed us from the curse of the law. He became a curse for us, for it is written. How do we know that? Again, he refers to the Scripture, to the Word of God. It is written, he says, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Turn back to Deuteronomy, this time chapter 21. All those laws we referred to before, there were those laws that required, if they were violated, they required capital punishment. And and when there was an offender who had committed a crime requiring this capital punishment, he was viewed as having been cursed by God and having been rejected by God. And as a symbol and as a sign of that, they were to hang them on a tree after they had been executed as an indication that God's curse had come upon them. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 22. In our text in Galatians, Paul says, For it is written, Cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. Here in Deuteronomy 21, verse 22, we see that it is written. 
And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. Cursed not because he is hanged, but because his hanging indicates his cursing. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. And to show that Jesus Christ indeed had become a curse for us, that the curse for our not keeping the law was indeed upon him, he was hanged on a tree. So that it might be seen and that it might be evident for all to see for all eternity that he had become a curse. He had become a curse for us because every man who hangs on a tree is cursed. The Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, hanged on a tree, cursed and rejected by God. And we see that that the Savior himself, he saw, he felt this cursing. He knew he was being cursed in his humanity when he cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the result of the curse, the utter and complete abandonment and forsaking by God. And this curse our Savior took upon himself. He redeemed us from the curse so that this curse might not come upon us who believe in his name, who, who do the will of his Father in heaven who believe in his name, as we saw, that is the Father's will. That those who would see him would look upon him and believe on him. He was our representative. He, as a man, yet being fully God, hung on that tree, and he was cursed. Not because of what he had done, but because of what we had done, our curse coming upon him. And then in verse 14 in our text, we see the purpose. We begin to see the purpose. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. That salvation, that that the blessing of Abraham, the blessing to all nations might be fulfilled. He was the seed of Abraham. He was a descendant of Abraham. In Christ Jesus, this was fulfilled so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. The blessing of being justified by faith because he had become a curse for them. Being justified by faith and not from works. This blessing of being free from the curse was now in Christ to every nation. But second to that, we also see the purpose of him becoming a curse for us that we might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith, that we might receive the promised Holy Spirit. Those who he became a curse for, that we might receive the promised Holy Spirit. And again, Paul is speaking to the Galatians, but he is also speaking to us. This was so that you would have this promised Holy Spirit being fulfilled. The the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Spirit, the, the indwelling of the Spirit, the sealing of the Spirit, the Spirit by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit who bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit who helps us in our weakness, even when we know not how we ought to pray, He makes groanings and intercessions for us. That this promised Holy Spirit might come upon us who believe, by whom we are baptized or placed into the body of Christ. The one who, who drew us unto the Lord, who opened our eyes to see our own cursed state. The gift of the Holy Spirit by whom is placed all the wisdom, love, and power of God at the disposal of his child. 
The Spirit who then illuminates the Word of God through the believer so that we might know Him and that we might understand His Word, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The Spirit who then indwells the believer, lives within us and points us to God and places God inside the believer, Romans 8 verse 9. The Spirit by which we have then been sealed unto eternity who who has become the guarantee of that eternal life actually being a real reality. The Spirit, the one through whom we then communicate to the Father in the name of Jesus Christ because it is by His Spirit that we cry, Abba, Father. Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, turn your attention there for a moment. Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The same way the Son cried out in, in the garden in His most desperate time, pleading, Abba, Father, pleading with the Father in a very real, relational, and intimate way, we now, by the Spirit, in the Spirit of the Son, can also cry out, Abba, Father, to the Heavenly Father, to our Heavenly Father. He became a curse for us to redeem us from the curse of the law that we might receive the promised Holy Spirit. It is no wonder then that Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you in the beginning of the chapter? And he would say that to, to any believer who, who has this spirit, who has truly been saved, and then is, is wondering if, if, if he maybe needs to do this or to do that to, to ensure that his salvation might remain. Oh, you foolish one. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? You have this. You, you have this marvelous Savior who gave himself, who, who became the curse for you who has given you the promised Holy Spirit, who is and does all these things for you and and in you, and and you're going to walk away from that and, and put yourself under that which is cursed? Foolish Galatians. Bewitched. You must be bewitched. And it was true. They they had been. Bewitched is anyone who, having been justified by faith, again would seek to be under that which is a curse. And so to conclude this morning, we have seen the curse. We have seen the curse of works for salvation. We've seen the extent of the curse, that it is all-encompassing. That if we are guilty of but one infraction, we are under the curse. And so we see that we are all guilty. We are all under the curse. And the obvious conclusion from that is that the law cannot redeem us. The law can only curse. But the marvelous, incredible blessing, Christ was cursed for us. God the Father cursed His Holy Son so that we might be redeemed from the curse, so that the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that we who believe might receive the promised Holy Spirit, so that where before it was impossible, we can now serve Him acceptably. What an incredible blessing, truth, and promise. But the question that we must ask then, before we close, what are you relying on? One is a blessing One is a curse. The curse is extensive, full and complete, but just as extensive is the blessing. For Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 that in Christ we have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What a glorious truth. Let us close in prayer. Our great God, And Heavenly Father, 
we stand before you again in awe that you, cursed as we be, would send your Holy Son, the spotless, sinless, perfect Son of God, and curse him. Turn your back on him, desert him, and reject him so that we who are called by your name might not be rejected and cursed by you. That we might be redeemed from this curse of sin. That we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Father, we thank you this morning for that marvelous work. We thank you for your son, for the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Though he pleaded to have this curse not be upon him, but because of his great love he had for you, because of the great love with with, which he loved us, because of the riches of his mercy, he was cursed, hanged on a tree so that we might be redeemed, that we might receive the gift of the promised Holy Spirit through whom we now cry, Abba, Father, who works in us and through us, who reveals to us this Savior through your word. Father, I pray for those here today who might not have received that promised Holy Spirit, for those who might still be under the curse, not being able to cry out to you as their Father. Lord, cause the weight and the terror of that curse to grip them in such a way as to bring them to surrender and repentance, that they might look upon Christ whom you sent and and believe. And for those that have received him, those who have received this promised Holy Spirit, cause us to walk in him more fully and not after the flesh. Lord, we praise you. We thank you for who you are and what you have done. And for the sake of Christ and his great name, cause us in this new year to walk evermore in his ways. And might your name and your name alone be praised for this great work now and for all eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.